This is Let Your Voice Be Heard, right here on WHCR 90.3 FM, the voice of Harlem. Hello, beautiful people, and welcome to another action-packed week of Let Your Voice Be Heard, only on 90.3 FM, WHCR, the voice of Harlem. If you are wondering who this beautiful man is, no it one is your wondering. one. Nobody you know cares. what, Jackie? You're a stupid loser, <laughs> and no one likes you. This is Stanley Fritz, the most handsomest, charming, fastest-talking man in all of Eastern New York and currently Western Harlem, and I am here with... A Alyssa Fuchs, Jackie Cohen, and we also have a special guest who snuck in through the back window, and we're calling security on her in a few minutes, but this is about me, this is not about them, and you can find me on the Twitter, at Stan Fritz, on the Instagram, at Stan Fritz, on the Snapchat, getting rational on the rap rap, that doesn't rhyme, on the rap pack with a snapback hat, that's what else has, at Dark Skin Swindle, or if you don't have any friends on the Facebook don't add me. If you see me in the Uber pool, don't talk to me. I don't know you. Shout out oh, to you Bo- think you're, you're Bodega Boys. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Bodega Boys. But anyways, guys, I'm here. Talk to me. Who else is here with me? I'm here. Um, so my name is Alyssa Fuchs, and I am your legal correspondent. <laughs> and um, I was just telling everybody a really funny story about that song we were just playing. And I won't mention who she is because she'll kill me if I say her name on the radio, or maybe she wouldn't. But back in the day, um, that song, which is Pour Some Sugar on Me by Def Leppard, there's a really funny story. One of my friends, when mm. it came on, she used to jump out of uh, um, a Mustang and start taking her clothes off in the middle of the street. That's I mean, like not every totally white naked, movie. <laughs> um, but at least part of the way. And that was like the big joke every time that song came on. She's like, ooh, I'm white. Yeah. <laughs> Anyways, <laughs> you can find me on Facebook at Facebook dot com slash Alyssa Fuchs. That's Alyssa with an I where we are live broadcasting this show. Uh, we are also live broadcasting the show on our Facebook feed and on Politically Preposterous where you can leave a comment or a question for us. Um, and I think that's everywhere you can find me. Oh, right. Twitter. You can definitely find me on Twitter at Alyssa Fuchs and that's Alyssa with an I. You have much cooler friends than I do. I don't think I have any friends that hopped out of a Mustang to take their clothes off to pour some <laughs> sugar on me. Um, but I am Jackie Cohen. I'm here. I am awake. She's not queer. Amazingly, I, I am not queer, but We're gay. We're cool. glad. Don't tell um, mom and dad. <laughs> Um, I, yeah, I am not awake this morning. Daylight savings. I mean. It's a devil. Yes. Oh, so you slept last night. Yeah, clearly one of us got sleep last night and it was not me. It was 11 o'clock and I put my head down to look at my phone. I looked back up. It was 1247. And I said, what just happened? It's not okay. I know. I am so tired. But anyway, if you're tired too and you're, you know, feeling the solidarity there, you can follow me on uh, Twitter and on Instagram at Jackie Cohen, J-A-Q-I-C-O-H-E-N. And we have a very special guest in the studio. Oh, say yeah. who you are. <laughs> yes, um, my name is Marcella Barrientos, and I am. Well, how do we follow you, you, Marcella? Oh gosh, I have like the <laughs> lowest profile on the <laughs> earth. So, but if you'd like to see my like, I don't know, photos of food on Instagram, I uh, I like <laughs> photos of food. Yes, I mostly <laughs> just like to eat food. Yeah. I think we could be like In best friends. Yeah, right. Fried chicken. <laughs> 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 Alyssa's obsession with fried chicken is ridiculous, I and I approve it's it. <laughs> yeah, my fried chicken obsession is really bad. Yes. Like to the point where I was eating fried chicken like three times a week, which is really wow. not good for you. Yeah. So I had to so stop doing that. Before we get back to Marcella's <laughs> intro, I want to say we had a huge fight over the summer because we wanted to go to brunch, and Alyssa was like adamant on going to Andrews oh, yeah. oh, because yeah. she wanted fried chicken. <laughs> it was like. 
was, and we were waiting forever <laughs> for two hours. And then we ended up not going there, and we went to Harlem Tavern instead. And it was great. <laughs> and then because I lost. I lost my business card holder, and I was really upset. It was about a very it. dramatic day. And for then all I of ended us. up getting it back. And then when I went to Amy Ruth's to get it back, they hooked me up with that free fried chicken. Hey, shout out to Amy Ruth. So guys, <laughs> really quickly because we have to get the show on the road today. We have an action-packed episode. So first off, we're talking about the International Day of Women's March and the Day Without Women March that happened on March 8th, where some of my favorite people got arrested because that's what we do in this activist world. We get arrested for standing up for the rights of others. Or sometimes you get arrested for turning up too much at the college party. <laughs> but I don't, I don't want to talk about that. And then... Yeah, that's s- not an acceptable one. Yeah, right. <laughs> I would strongly and aggressively disagree. Um, in the second half of the show, we're talking about Trump care. So, you know you got the Affordable Care Act that was made by Barack J. Kwan Hussein Obama, the, the black rapper that somehow stumbled into the White House and stole the keys. He put out a health care plan and now the great white God has put out a health care plan that will save all of our lives. Or will it? We'll talk about that. Then, of course, Alyssa has a great quickie because she's going to explain to you, why am I going brain dead? Alyssa, tell us what you're talking about. Um, I'm going to tell you about the new Muslim ban, which is a little different than the old Muslim ban. <laughs> wait, <laughs> wait, the, wait. There no. are six countries, not seven. There are levels to Muslim bans. Spoiler oh, there's many levels to Muslim bans. But actually, what's interesting about this one is that it's very similar to uh, Obama-era policy that basically was passed um well, passed isn't the right word because it's an executive order, not a law, but that basically was implemented without any issue or without any hitches. Now, that's not to say they're exactly the same. There are many differences between what was done during the Obama administration and this second ba- Muslim ban. Um, that said, because of the way they frame this one, it's going to be a lot harder to challenge it in a courtroom. So that's uh, something we should be thinking about. That makes that well. Guys, my sliding chair is not working. <laughs> that sounds slightly depressing. But anyways, guys, oh, listen, we are not going to haggle over this right now, at least at this very moment. We're going to go on a quick break. And when we come back, we will start with the International Day Without Women. Why? Because it's going to be a fun thing to talk about. And because we are all exhausted, or maybe it's just me and Jackie, because Alyssa yes. decided to sleep and I Marcella apparently sleep. got eight hours. Yeah, you guys look tired. Or yes. so, uh, thanks. <laughs> thanks. Thanks. Hey, I was cut off. You know what? Thanks. That's fair. Jackie always has a face for radio, but me, I have a face for TV. So, guys, sure. consider this Who your said musical you're that coffee. Pretty? I am amazingly beautiful, but consider this your morning coffee. And we are back on Let Your Voice Be Heard on 90.3 FM. WHCR, the voice of Harlem. That song may have been clean. It may have not. You will never know because You'll I faded it out know. just before Rihanna did or did not use the F word. And that is what you do when you are a masterful engineer. Yeah. So, guys. Truly. Yes. A genius. And if I didn't if I didn't fade it down in time, the drop button is always on Zeckington yeah. as the great. And it's going to go zing, 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 zaddy. And <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, God, guys. So. Real quick story, and then we'll get to the actual topic of the show. One time I had to press the drop button because someone did not say a curse word on air. And then instead of the actual, just, you know, just like cutting it out, it goes boing. (laughs) 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 So that was weird. Love it. But anyways, guys, what are we here to talk about today? So as you guys know, on Wednesday, March 8th was international. I'm pretty sure I'm butchering the day, aren't I? 
No. Oh. No. You got it. So Wednesday, March you 8th. You did something right for once. Good job. Oh, my God. We're Thank proud. You. Finally. Finally. March 8th was Loser. International Women's Day. And what is International Women's Day? For those of you guys who do not know, because I don't know, maybe you just never read a book or you just <laughs> never paid attention. Or you live under much, a rock. Yeah. Or you live under your male fragility. It is pretty <laughs> much a day to celebrate the social, economic, cultural, and political achievements of women. And... This is March, it's, it's Women's Month, but on this particular day, we want to make sure we're focusing and we're spotlighting all the great accomplishments of women. And when we talk about social and political accomplishments of women and great women, one of the things that comes to mind to me, um, especially because I've been doing a lot of reading around it, is are the Young Lords. And the Young Lords and how they started their Women Caucus back in 1970. And one of the biggest things that, that, that they did with this caucus, besides getting men to start looking at feminism and intersectionality in 1970, was they... they came up with a simple philosophy the personal is political and the reason they said that was because listen we are a group of puerto rican dominican black women we face racism and we face sexism there is nothing within our experience that could separate from just being personal it is all political because the politics of this nation affects our bodies our friends our families our joy every single thing and this is what they were saying in 1970 and they were trying to find spaces <coughs> that women could fit in and fighting for equality for women and since then we've had other iterations of amazing and powerful women pushing amazing and powerful ideology forcing the conversation down when even when people don't want to hear it and also striving for greater change and on days like this and on months like this, we recognize women like them. But on this day, on March 8th, it was especially interesting because in the spirit of the Young Lords, which was pretty much a diverse group of Afro-Latinos, Afro-African-Americans, and even some white people, like one and a half white people, fighting for justice for all people, the organizers of the Women's March. So, Carmen Perez, Tamika Maori. Linda Sarsour, their national organizer, Natasha Williams, who, we, who we'll be hearing from if you listen to our podcast um, next week. They helped to organize the International Day Without Women. What does that mean? It means that women all over the world, not just in the U.S., all over the world on that day, if they could, did not go to work or they did not invest <coughs> into corporations or businesses that do not support or prop up and elevate women. And why was that? Because we had to show the world what it would feel like if women were not here contributing. I will tell you, if I have not had women contributing in my life from day one to day, whenever this life of mine ends, I'd be in a really bad place. I'd also be really smelly and not make up my bed because my dad just didn't pay attention to stuff like that. But that's besides the point. So what we're here to talk about today is International Women's Day, that action, the impact of women in our lives and what this means in today's America. What does it mean in Trump's America? Still a world that's run by men and a world where women are still fighting for equality. And to start the conversation off, what I want to just kind of do right now is throw it to the panel. I'm going to throw it to Jackie because she and I are looking directly into each other's faces oh and ask her, what, is, what does the International Day of Women mean to you, if anything at all? I mean, I think it's... I. I you know, I've participated in actions for International Women's Day before, but I think this year for me specifically felt a little more urgent, right? Certainly with this current administration. Um, but that's not to say that things are so different for women this year specifically than they've been before, right? I think that it's important to acknowledge that women... Um, struggle and struggle differently um, and depending on how you identify I think that there are you know as many different ways women struggle as there are women in this world um, and so it's important to have a day where women can um, join together in solidarity and hear each other and hear each other struggle and um, work to you know 
to amplify each other's voices. I'm going to throw a wrench into the, into the game right now because th- that's that's your interpretation. That's your feelings. Marcella, you are a Latina woman. Does Jackie's white woman struggle <laughs> mean the same for you? <laughs> no, you know, seriousness. Well, um, first of all, there, I think that there is a lot kind of said in the opening. And by the way, my Twitter and Instagram handle is yeah. Marcella Barry. Marcella, M-A-R-C-E-L-A-B-A-R-R-I-E. All right, guys, block her. <laughs> <laughs> Look and, for cool um, food posts. So there's a number of things to unpack. And I think that uh, inherently, yes, that there's, a, there's always going to be a solidarity, whether it's with cisgendered women, trans women, wh- whatever the identity is around um, female identity. Um, and so putting that aside, I think that while I, I've always, I've always, that was a new word, maybe I'm waking <laughs> up too, I've always um, respected and honored uh, days that are allocated <laughs> for marginalized people. You know, women's history and women's resistance has been uh, part of my life. So it's not like you wake up and you're like all of a sudden like, oh, snap, today's the day. It's you wake up every day and you think about, you know, what are the acts of solidarity that we can um, commit to make sure that we move forward our rights, that we move forward our um equality. So just thinking back and, and, you know, there's like little bits that I, I was thinking about in, in coming over here, you know, Greece is, is, is a place where we think of kind of the birth of democracy. Yet in Greece, Greek women didn't gain the right to vote till 1952. Um, when we think about the way the female body has been politicized, has been oppressed, has been kind of um, a way to measure class, uh, uh, been a way to kind of measure um, uh, property. Um, it, it really, it's, it's, it goes beyond uh, one day. <laughs> and I think particularly as a woman of color, I've very much so kind of restrained myself from identifying as a feminist. I've always called myself a womanist. Well, hold, hold that thought for, there for one second. So and I want to bring it to Alyssa real quick because I like what you just said right there, especially being a woman of color. Alyssa, you are a white woman, woman but you are also a part of the LGBTQ community. So how does that change or alter, if at all, your perception of the, the women, womanist feminist intersectional movement or what have you well I mean I think it's one of those things where on one hand I still have to recognize that I do occupy a certain place of entitlement because of the fact that I am a white woman at the same time and and that's outwardly when people judge you and they first meet you a lot of times they don't know that you're queer I mean sometimes obviously people make assumptions but unless you talk to me and I tell you you know and you might assume that I'm queer by by meeting me but unless I talk to you and actually tell you that I am you're not going to know so I'm just walking down the street and people are making a assumptions about me, like, for example, police officers. I'm still a lot less likely to get stopped than a woman of color is to get stopped. But I I actually just want to take it back for a second, um, because I want to acknowledge, you you mentioned that the 1970s women's movement. So the first women's march on Washington actually was observed as early as 1908. Mm -hmm. In 1908, 15,000 women marched through New York City demanding shorter hours, better pay, and the right to vote. Um, On the same day, the following year, which was 1909, women staged another Mm -hmm. demonstration. This time they did so with the Socialist Party of America and they continued to do this on the last Sunday of February every year until 1913. As you might know, shortly thereafter, uh, women did in fact 
gain the right to vote. Um, that was the women's suffrage movement. But a lot of people want to know why May 8, why March 8th. And that actually goes back to the Women's March in Petrograd, Russia, mm-hmm. uh, which helped to spark the Russian Revolution in 1917. So it's actually really interesting to acknowledge that the, these demands that women were making as early as the early 1900s for equality actually helped to spark one of the most significant events in world history, which is the Russian Revolution. As you know, that then leads to the rise of the Communist Party in Russia and the rise of the U- the USSR. So there are just significant historical interactions. But then if you fast forward to today, and we can talk about this more throughout the show, um, the United in the United States in particular, uh, the U.S. lags behind many, many other countries in terms to terms of where our women stand. For example, 59 other countries in the world have had female presidents or prime ministers in the past century. The United States has not had one. Females hold 20% of seats in American Congress. In Europe, they hold 30%. In Scandinavia, that number is 40%. Um, when it comes to, you know, economics, only 10% of U.S. mutual fund managers are female. Elsewhere, females hold 20% of those jobs. In America, 19% of the wealthiest women are self-made. In Asia, that number is 50 percent. So when we look historically, we have a lot of different ways in which we can judge um, how far women have come. So we can look at the right to vote. We can look at women in power. We can look at women in economic power. And we can come to very different conclusions about where women stand in the United States and around the globe. Alyssa, that was an amazing chunk of information. I'm so thankful that you've done that. We, I know we have people listening. If you want to call in with a question, a comment, or just say you love us, or you just love me, don't lie, you can give us a call at 212-650-6903. Again, that is 212-650-6903. Or you can tweet us at BeHeardRadio, underscore radio. If you're on Facebook Live, if you're on Alyssa's stream, message Alyssa. She'll read your message on air as long as it's not curse words or yay Trump. <laughs> or if you're on my Facebook Live, hey, Tony, I see you. Message me here. <laughs> Gina, thank you. Message us here, and I will definitely make sure that we read your messages. Now, we have a lot to talk about, but Jackie, I did see your eyes perk up quite a bit while Alyssa was talking. Hit me with some info. Yeah, I mean, I think that what Alyssa, um, I think all that information was really interesting. I also think it's important to note that while in other, I mean, it's important to note where the U.S. sort of stacks up compared to other countries, you know, globally. I think that's very important to do, but I think it's important to note that just even if women are gaining political power and economic power and advancing economically, that doesn't mean that women are necessarily advancing um, socially or politically. I cannot speak this morning, but do you know what I mean? Like it, it, women, the more wealth that women obtain does not mean that women are still being treated as men and respected as men. And, you know, just because it it could be that white women are gaining a certain amount of wealth while women of color are not. And so to look at historically, especially in this country, the, the trajectory that women have moved towards, I think it's important to sort of break down that economic factors are not the only thing, only barrier keeping women, um, you know, at the same respected level as men. I guess. Yeah, and I want to echo something that you just said, because I think that, yes, institutional representation is easy to measure, yeah. and I think definitely is a way to um, measure it to traditional standards, yeah. especially as a woman of color. I think that uh, our communities have been organizing and resisting for a long time, but we don't always have the platforms to document that history, to also um, disseminate that information and history, again. Um, so aside from that, I think just to think about the fact that Latinas in the U.S. are the lowest paid workers in all of the country. We make 54 cents to the dollar and we have the highest rates of sexual harassment Mm -hmm. on the work site. So, you know, I think to um, 
really think holistically about what a women's movement is and how do we measure progress is it has to you have to include intersectionality yeah right? yeah so now and i do think that's why i've always kind of gone back to the term womanist versus feminist thank you so now we we just heard a couple of terms over here and i want to give you guys some context intersectionality assuming that s- most people are like me when you first started and you said i just figured out what sexism was now i'm here <laughs> intersectionality intersectionality is an interconnected nature of social categorizations such as race class and gender as they apply to a given individual or group Regarding, regarded as creating overlapping and interdependent systems of discrimination or disadvantages. For example, as a black man, I am, I am like facing one sort of set of discriminations. But if I was a black gay man, those would be two different sets of discrimination. If I was a black gay man and also living in poverty, those are three different sets of discriminations because each different piece has a different face of discrimination. Some of them overlap, some of them don't. But these are these these are all a part of my identity, which is through intersectionality. When you're talking about feminism, and you might hear some people say white feminism, it's because literally white, like the movement for white women, some of their issues do not address the issues of women of color, of queer women, of trans women, and because of that, it, it kind of misses an entire section, and that's where that intersectionality comes from. So, guys, we do want to make sure we're getting questions and comments from all of you guys. We have to go on a quick break, but before we do, one of the questions I want to ask, and I want to kind of throw it to Alyssa, because as, as once again, Alyssa, I'm sorry, but as a queer that's woman, right. no, not queer, that's the wrong categorization, right? No, I mean, I can, I categorize as both. Okay, so, uh, thank you. So, so as a queer woman, when, like, how do you bridge those gaps? I mean, I think that's different for every woman. So, like, you know, and, and, you know, because, well, one, I should clarify, I identify as gender non-binary, which in some ways takes me out of the realm of identifying solely as a Mm -hmm. woman. But within that gender non-binary, I identify basically as what we would call bi-gender, which Mm -hmm. is both a female and a male, uh, which would put me back into that category being a woman. So the first thing I think we need to recognize is that sex, gender, and sexuality are different. And queer is sort of an overarching term that is broader, which can encompass both sexuality and gender, but doesn't necessarily necessarily um, occupy both spaces. That said, you know, for me, navigating has been quite easy because of the fact that I grew up in a white middle class neighborhood. I got a good education. I went to law school. I have a you know, position as an attorney. That puts me in a much different position than um, my fellow counterparts that are non-binary or that are trans, that are of color, or that do not occupy the same socioeconomic place that I do. And I think that's a really important thing to remember. I mean, trans women of color are the most at risk to be raped, to be mm-hmm. killed. The The homicide rate um, amongst trans women of color is extremely high. Um, there is almost a crisis that it, nothing is being done about. Mm -hmm. Um, And in addition, just to go to your point about intersectionality, a big pushback that we saw at the Women's March and a big piece of criticism that a lot of women were receiving is that trans women were not necessarily included in the mix. I mean, there are obviously two groups and two camps on this issue, and we can delve more into this after the break, but there's one camp of women that accept trans women as being women and think that they should be included in the women's movement and that their issues need to be brought to the forefront within that movement. There are a whole other group of women that basically believe that trans women are not women and should not be included at all within the movement, and that obviously sets up a a battle between these two camps within the feminist move- movement itself. So, 
So, guys, we do have to go on a quick break. When we come back, I want to pick up on this topic. We're talking about the women's movement overall. And Alyssa just mentioned some of the friction that's going on between trans women and, and other women within that movement. This is Let Your Voice Be Heard. We'll be right back after this quick song. Don't say that The more that. I smoke, the smaller the <laughs> feeling gets. Room 112, where the players dwell. Rest in peace, Biggie Smalls, the greatest rapper alive, died on March 9th. Meaning he's not alive. Word to life, rest it's in peace, Big. It's because you want to know what Biggie is. The greatest rapper to ever have lived. Listen, that's the way Cannabis said it on Second Round Knockout, okay? <laughs> Hit you in the groin, beat you, beat you up in front of your first, second, and, and third And this is bar. why Eminem's famous and Cannabis is not. But we could get into that Eminem after the show. Cannabis. <laughs> but anyways, guys, we are back on Let Your Voice Be Heard on 90.3 FM, WHCR, the voice of Harlem. If you are just tuning in, this is Stanley Fritz. I'm here with with Alyssa Fuchs, Jackie Cohen, and, and of course our special guest, Marcella Barrientos. Barrientos. <laughs> anyone, anyone ever do that before? No. Thank goodness. That was really bad. So guys, we are talking about International Women's Day and having a broader conversation about the women's movement, feminism, sexism, patriarchy, and womanism altogether. And we were talking about some of the friction in the trans trans women trans women and i guess quote unquote traditional feminism or first wave feminism whatever you call that and i know jack you had something to say so i'm throwing it to you yeah i mean i think that this i think that the criticism of certainly the women's march and these um these larger actions is very valid right i think that there has been a history of sort of pro women spaces that have been exclusionary towards trans women um i know there was for years the michigan women's Fest, uh, music festival that was a space that was built for lesbian women to have a women's space um and while you know it was built on this idea that this is going to be a space for women to feel free and feel comfortable with one another and express themselves there was much controversy over the fact that it was a space for women born women so women with female genitalia right and that was and so trans women were often barred from attending the festival and um eventually it shut down for this reason and i think that that you know as someone who is who is a feminist i i don't view being a woman as simply having female genitalia right and i think that it's important for women in their messaging going forward to remember um that women you know it's not just about like what genitalia you have like that's not what makes you a woman right and it's important to be inclusive of people who identify in the way that they do and um and to shun people based on a body part that they possess is is problematic to me well listen i'm gonna throw you under the bus what what defines you as a woman then well i you know just stop you keep putting these questions on me when i have other stuff i want to say i'm sorry <laughs> um i mean this was something that they addressed directly uh in the episode of transparent i right. don't know if you've seen that show but they oh, essentially yeah. do uh, a scene where they're at this women's festival and you know the whole thing when the men show up to um empty the urinals they start yelling man on the land man right. on the land and it turns out that there's one character Character there that is the is a woman um, who's a trans woman and gets very offended by this and there's a whole scene about it so that sort of speaks to what makes somebody a woman what makes somebody a woman is do they identify as a woman if you right. identify as a woman you are a woman period it's not about genitalia it's about how you and that goes back to another point that I wanted to make about myself and about a question you asked me earlier which is all of this stuff is labeling is that society is constantly looking to put people in a box sure there are women who are biologically born as 
females. And, of course, they are women until the point where they decide they don't want to identify as a woman and they want to identify as a trans man or as gender non-binary or something else. But all, uh, but other than that, if you are born as biologically male but you are in the process of transitioning or you have transitioned and you identify as a woman in my mind you are a woman that makes you a woman the fact that you say that you know like and I think we get too caught up in these societal you know these boxes that society wants to put people in um, you know and that's why we have this whole issue right now going on about bathrooms see right like and and about who should go in what bathroom and it's all about this posturing and labeling and you know it's just like let people live if somebody says they're a woman and they are fighting for women's rights then like they are, they are a woman. Don't question that. Well, at the end of the day, women have been oppressed and women should not therefore go and oppress others, right? And that's something that it's difficult to do, I think, when you've experienced any kind of trauma or any kind of, or, you know, experience any kind of oppression to then look back at your community. I mean, I don't know if it's it's difficult or easy to do for everybody. Um, I'm not speaking clearly because I'm still not awake. But I think that it's it's important for women and especially for feminists to then you know, not continue to oppress other women, right? And to um, break free and listen to other women and uphold their voices. Marcella, what does some of that oppression look like besides what we talked about with trans women? Um, not clear in your question, right? But I think just in going back to, I think, historically, too, I know, um, Alyssa, you mentioned like the 1960s and the 1970s in terms of progress of the feminist movement. Um, I just want to point out that also in the 1960s and the 1970s, there was sterilization of Latina women happening in California and sterilization of Puerto Rican women in Puerto Rico. So I think, you know, again, it's, it's and this is part of the narrative that I think has to be built in more into womanist movements and, and I guess, feminist movements, um, that women of color have experiences differently. And I also just want to bring in the perspective of immigrant women. When I, I was born in Honduras, and when I think of Latin America, this is a region where femis- it's the highest, they have the highest rate of femicide. Meaning, if you are a woman born in Latin America, you are more likely to die because you are a woman. Yeah. Um, so when I think of, of women that, that, that migrate to the U.S. and have these transnational identities, um, you have to assume that social issues also migrate. And what are the networks, what are the safety nets that we have in place for our sisters who maybe don't have a legal status, who, you know, forget about identifying as as this or that, but you're literally just trying to survive and you actually don't have any recourse. So again, it's really about adding the multitude of perspectives about women that go beyond a box. And it really is about survival. And, um, I know, so I just wanted to throw that out there. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. And something Alyssa and I spoke about, I think, a little bit at length earlier this week is this idea that it's not, feminism is not just about equal pay, right? It's not just about reproductive rights. It's not just about getting more women elected into office. It's about supporting other women, right? And it's about, you know, expanding rights for all women and safety and freedom for all women, not just on the basis of specific gender point. It's not just about reproductive rights, right? Um, And to have some women be free and others not, to have some women live in financial stability and others not, to have some women live in sort of citizen security while others are at risk in this country. That's not, you, you can't be a feminist and continue on and assume that everything's fine when there are other women who are suffering. 
Go ahead, Alyssa. No, I'm going to say, but at the same time, right, you have people who have claimed that there are some issues within the women's movement, even ones where you say, like, may not impact, like, I, I agree with you. But, like, the point, like, talking about abortion rights, for example, obviously that's one of the planks of the women's rights movements. Yet that has excluded women who otherwise maintain that they are feminists, but now they are um anti-choice. Now, I personally think if you're anti-choice, you can't be a feminist, but that's my own that's my own personal opinion about feminism about who can and can't be a feminist. There are plenty of women who believe in equal rights for women, equal pay for women, and many, many of the other issues that the feminist movement looks to um, perpetuate, and yet they're like, but I'm anti-choice. And they feel like there was a whole group of women who came out and said, I felt excluded from the Women's March on Washington because I am anti-choice. And then you had a whole other group of women who, for example, um, like as Jackie was saying, like the struggles of marginalized people, of one group of marginalized people are important for the struggles of all. So one of the planks that the feminist movement has taken and the March on Washington taken is a pro-Palestinian anti-oppression. Mm -hmm. That, of course, um, there was an article in the New York Times, very interesting, about a woman who is a Zionist who says, you know, I believe in all the other things that the feminist movement believes in. I believe in equal, equal pay for equal work. I believe in in choice. I believe in all these other things. She said, but as a Zionist, you know, I and and obviously we could have a whole separate debate about the Israel Palestine <laughs> situation <laughs> and go on and for, will. for and like we will. We could have a whole show on that. But she says that because of that one thing, like she feels excluded from the feminist movement because they have taken this position on Israel Palestine relationships. It's a real problem. She doesn't necessarily agree with. So it's like what and in terms of intersectionality, what mm. can and what should and should not be included when it comes to women's rights and is it appropriate to get these other not necessarily women's issues involved and I don't mean the intersectionality of gender issues or you know um, LGBT issues or women of color issues I mean these other um, not necessarily women's issues like the issue of Israel-Palestine like do they come into play when having these conversations and are certain women being excluded and obviously the issue of abortion is different. I want to cut you off for one second because we've been going for a little bit, so I want to like just put some breather in there. And then also, for those of you who are listening, who want to join into the conversation, please do. The number is 212-650-6903. Again, it is 212-650-6903. You can also tweet us at BeHeard underscore radio or respond to Facebook Live, whichever stream you are watching from. I want to pause before Alyssa continues because she's giving a lot of good information and address that first question you were talking about in relation to the Zionists being on, being on, on board with everything else but that piece and I'm going to jump into this conversation I've been trying to be more of a fly on the wall but I would say this is him being a fly on the yeah, wall yeah right I know really, really doing a great don't job make ah, me you yeah. gotta check your mail privilege <laughs> don't make me mansplain you woman wow okay. so I, like I threw him you off. can't be for racial justice but then don't think that we have to liberate Puerto Rico yeah. it doesn't work that way so you can't tell me black lives matter but then I say well we got to stop we got to stop what's happening to Puerto Rico. America's turning Puerto Rico into Greece, and you're saying, well, so what? No. It's it's all the way or no way. Right. When I say I'm with you, I message you the long way. It's not I message you until you get to the 45-yard line, and then I stop. How can I trust you really about this movement if you have caveats? 
Do you, no, would you guys agree? I totally, I totally agree. I mean, I personally think that you cannot support, you cannot be pro-occupation to respond mm-hmm. to that article and pro-woman, right? I don't think that you can have your cake and eat it too. You can't just cherry pick which parts of this you want to participate in. And I think that it is something that the women's movement in this country will have to address and have to struggle with. It's not an easy answer, right? Because people have these beliefs that are strongly held. And, I, you know, it's not going to be just be with us or be against us. But I do think that you cannot support the oppression of some groups and ultimately support all women. And Alyssa, you made a woman named Jane Hirschman very happy this morning by bringing up Palestine yeah. and the complexities of it. And yeah. I think, and and again, I, I, I very respectfully uh, resist calling myself a feminist for a number of these reasons. And I think part of it is not discussing privilege within this movement. And when we talk about liberation, I completely agree with Stanley. You're in it all the way yeah. or you're acting on your privilege. Alyssa? Yeah, no, I mean, I, I would absolutely agree with that. You have to look at some of these things and say, okay, well, you know, I have a personal stance about this issue, but in order, you know, maybe I need to rethink that. Or maybe I need to just listen and be open-minded. And obviously, mm-hmm. we should all be open-minded. I was very open-minded when I read her article just to see where she was coming from. I disagree with her, but I think that, you know, her point is an interesting point. And I think that's a big thing in this movement. It's just, to one, to be open-minded, but two, like, for white women to listen to what women of color um, and trans women are saying because obviously the issues that are facing um, some women are not necessarily the issues that are facing all women and so you know it's like one of those things where as a white woman you need to listen to what other women are saying and understand their struggles and understand how that struggle may be different than yours and say how can I help how can I be part of your struggle because obviously that's not an issue I'm facing Um, but just in terms of the actual movement movement itself I mean the thing about the women's strike was that there was a whole conversation about the women's strike about whether you had to be privileged just to participate Mm -hmm. in it to begin with because they said you know only women that can afford to take off of work can particularly participate in the strike to begin with and then there was obviously a counterpart article that I was reading in Jacobin magazine saying that's not true that the and you pointed this out Marcella during your your early comments which is a lot of the the previous women's rights movement were immigrant women who did take days off for work even ones that they couldn't afford. And so this article actually argued that privilege had nothing to do with it, that anybody could strike at any time. And yes, of course, you know, that was going to be difficult for some women and it was going to impact certain women, in particular Mm -hmm. women of color and minority women, more than it would impact white women to take that day off. But nonetheless, that regardless, it wasn't necessarily about privilege, that, you know, it was about showing that these are your whites. And then obviously there's a second level of that question, which is, did the strike have any effect? So I'll open that up to you guys to well, uh, and sort it, and of it's answer interesting, that. right? Because and, and there hasn't been any historical evidence to kind of tie this, but the, the myth is um, part of the uh, Women's International Day came out of a strike from the garment workers and uh, women garment workers. And, um, and I thought, well, wouldn't it be interesting if not just for one day, all women didn't go to buy H&M clothes in solidarity with Indian women workers every single day? You know, when we talk about a globalized economy, we have to talk about globalized solidarity. And I think that deepening understanding of of what's happening in Palestine, what's happening in India, what's happening in Brazil, what's happening in China affects us here. 
it deepens our investment, I believe, in being able to humanize one another. Okay, trans women. Okay, not born woman, whatever. The, the gender, it's, you weren't born that way. But you're identifying in this right. struggle. Right? You yeah. want to be an ally. And I think, and I think that, 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 that comes from the labor movement. I w- worked in labor for eight years, and I'm labor till the day I die. Um, but even in those spaces, it was difficult to be a woman of color and have my needs uh, heard and, and feel comfortable saying, hey, I'm the only woman of color in the room, or at times I'm the only Latina in the room, or at times, uh, why can't we speak Spanish in these meetings? Like, most of the workforce in this particular (laughs) union is Latino, or why aren't we organizing Latino workers in these industries when it's just about numbers? And, you know, there's there's certain microaggressions and and, and institutional uh, racism exists, white supremacy exists, but how do we see beyond that to start creating some of the solidarity that goes beyond our local, that goes beyond our state? And I think Trump, and I hate to say his name because I call him El Chancho, (laughs) really kind of, this election really could have set a tone for the women's movement. We really had a moment to say, we're going to stand up against this. And we saw what happened. Well, wait. So we are running out of time. I'm going to jump, dive man first into this right now, guys, and kind of like cut the conversation short. But I want to ask the question with you saying that, and I want to ask this to the entire panel. My question is, so was the, was the International Women's Strike or the Day Without Women successful? And that's a question coming directly from our Facebook page from Gina, from Gina Davis, who's listening right now. I, I think that, again, uh, moments or days of solidarity are just that. And, and, of course, you have to honor it, even if, you know, f- look, even, uh, what was it, the Women's March in, in February? Or I forget. It was January. January. <laughs> January. <laughs> it feels you like know, a million There was a moment. I was in D.C. and I was like, you know, I, I'd have these moments of frustration because it's like women who were out in the street for the first time. Right. And, you know, you have, especially as a woman of color, you're like, where have you been? Yeah. Where have you been? And then as an organizer, I had to kind of change hats and think, wait a minute, they're out here. Mm -hmm. Like women are out here. People are out here. This is an opportunity to organize. So I think any day when people fill the streets and show that presence and show that solidarity is a success. The question is, what do we do after that? Right. I completely agree. I think that to the success isn't of this day isn't that (laughs) all women stayed home from work and no woman bought anything and everybody marched in the streets and it was, you know, and we overcame all societal ills facing women and, you know, we all lived happily ever after at the end, right? That's not what's going to happen ever. Um, You know, and these, this type of success that we're looking for is fought through struggle. And I think that to have women, I, I completely agree with Marcella's point that there are women that are joining in these movements, many white women who have never marched on behalf of other marginalized groups before, speaking for themselves, I think, um, and they're getting onto the streets and they're starting to identify, oh, wait, like the things that I'm experiencing, other women are experiencing mm-hmm. too and in different ways. And, you know, it's I, I think better late than never. I don't care when somebody comes to, you know, kind of wakes up and realizes that there are issues going on here. I'm just happy that they do. And I think for that reason, exactly, I think that it was a success. Yeah, no, I mean, and I would agree. I think it was successful simply because so many women now are becoming engaged. And I think we really saw this back in the 1970s. And there are a lot of parallels between the 1970s equal rights um, movement and which, by the way, as you probably are aware, the Equal Rights Amendment did not pass. It was essentially Mm -hmm. killed by a group of women who felt that their right to be a housewife was under attack. But the thing, that's the thing about this 
this movement, which is part of this movement is your right to be a housewife. <laughs> Feminism isn't just your right to go out and work. It's your right to stay home if that's what you want to do. It's your right to make a choice as a woman about what it is that you want to do without the rest of society and without the patriarchy deciding for you what it is that you have to do. So whether that choice is to stay home and raise your kids or whether that choice is to go out and be a lawyer and enter the workforce, the whole point of the movement is that it's your choice. That said, obviously, I think even with the success of the march and all these women now getting engaged, especially with the election of Donald Trump, we still have a long way to go. I came home from the New York City march that evening, and I came home to a status where uh, somebody that I know who's a white man said, mm. when is, can somebody tell me when straight white man's, uh, straight white working man's day is? And I didn't want to <laughs> get into a debate that night. I, it was late. I was tired. But I really felt in my the back of my head, I was like, it's straight white working man's day is every day. <laughs> every That's why you don't day. get a day. That's why it's called <laughs> Black Lives Matter, not All Lives right. Matter, because we're talking about a certain group. And it's not to the exclusion of other groups. It's just this group, women, has been historically <laughs> disenfranchised again. In fact, when I was in Washington, D.C. at the Women's March, there was a woman there holding a sign that said, do I really have to burn my bra again? Mm -hmm. And the whole point of the burning the bra again, which is we've already fought these battles and now it feels like we have to fight them again. And it, it's looking more and more like uh, in our political situation, we may need to fight the Roe versus mm -hmm. Wade battle again. Mm -hmm. right. We may need to fight the battle mm -hmm. over birth control again. Mm -hmm. We, you know, we're going to talk about Obamacare in our next segment. And one of the things they want to take money away from is Planned Parenthood, mm -hmm. which provides a lot, <laughs> a lot, a lot of health care to women, even excluding abortions. So there is mostly. so mostly excluding abortions. Mm -hmm. So there are obviously we've come a long way, but we have a long way left to go. And on that note, I'm going to throw it back to Jackie to close us out. So Stanley might close us out. <laughs> so actually, yeah. So we had a change of plans. I asked Jackie if I could just take some of the attention over here because I want to do something <laughs> that I consider to be a ra radical for me because I love the sound of my voice. And in respect of <laughs> like the month and of the moment, I'd like to seed my voice and give it to a woman who inspires me, who is powerful, who influences others, and who everyone in this room loves, except for maybe... No, I think everyone here loves her. So this is Beyonce. <laughs> this is Flawless. <laughs> Thank you. We'll be right back, guys. Thank you. And um, we yes. are mm. back. This mm. is Let Your Voice Be Heard Radio. My name is Alyssa Fuchs. I'm here with Stanley Fritz and Jackie Cohn and Marcella. I don't remember your last name. Um, and I probably screwed up if I tried to <laughs> say it. Um, and if you're enjoying our show, you can tweet at us at BeHeard underscore radio or you can call us at 212-650-6903 because we're about to give you some news stories. So if you have a news story that you want to share with us, make sure you give us a call or a tweet or you can also hit us up on Facebook live um so that said i don't know if you heard the big story this weekend is that donald trump told 46 attorney oh generals that they had to resign one of those was the attorney general for the southern district of new york um and Pete that, that's preet bahara preet, preet said nope i'm not resigning you're yeah. gonna have to fire me and then an hour later trump said okay you're fired you're fired, <laughs> you're fired. <laughs> um and that comes as a shock to a lot of I people i have been obsessed with this story this week I, it i mean it's shocking and it's not shocking at the same time right like it's shocking because trump had a very public meeting with preet barara after the election at trump tower where he said we're keeping you on and it's shocking because preet barara is a very powerful anti-corruption um, prosecutor. prosecutor. And he has 
put, you know, in in New York state politics, we say there's three men in a room that make all the decisions that do sort of behind the scenes budget negotiations. And two of them are going to jail. Two of them are in jail, right? There's the head of the Senate, the head of the Assembly, and Dean the governor. Dean Skelos and Scott De- and, and Sheldon <laughs> Silver. <laughs> Sheldon Silver, Dean Skelos, Dean Skelos' son. And Pre Barrera has been circling like a shark around Cuomo and, and coming for him. And he has and- recently... Um, indicted many people that are very close to Cuomo and his inner circle um, advisors and people that have worked with him and his family for years. So this is this firing to me as somebody that's very involved with government, uh, with New York state government politics is like a shock, right? It means what's going to happen in these investigations. They're going nowhere. They're probably going nowhere. Um, You know, pre is someone that stood for, anti-corruption who stood for better government and who had no reservations about taking down the most powerful men in new york state mm-hmm. and with him gone you know what does this mean what does this signal for the greater country as a whole i mean i know that 45 other um prosecutors were fired or were asked to resign yes. right so pre was lumped into that i guess it would be weird if he wasn't asked to resign as well and he was the only one only obama holdover that wasn't asked can, to resign can we talk about the craziness of this though because well pro- problematic language obviously but the problematic way this happened donald trump asked 49 obama people to resign because he is held bent on believing that they are the ones producing all of these leaks yeah. that are coming from his white house even though 99.9 percent of the leaks that have come out have been from spaces where you would have to be in trump's inner circle yep. to know what is going <laughs> exactly. on well, you know, I think there's a second reason that that Preet was told to let go on top of the fact that everybody was told to let go. Um, and but, you know, Preet, obviously, as you point out, has our track record of prosecuting corruption. And one of the big other stories that has come out this week is that Michael Flynn, the former National Security Council person who had to resign because of his contacts with Russia during the campaign, was literally a foreign agent for the <laughs> Turkish government. Yep. And so I have cool, a feeling cool, cool. that the other reason why the Trump administration and why Jeff Sessions wanted pre gone is because they don't want him sniffing around in their <laughs> Russia business. And when I really call their Russia Watergate scandal, because as far as I'm concerned, that whole thing is eventually going to break open but it's not going to break open unless there's an independent prosecutor that is looking into these things and so by mm. purging anybody that is not connected with the trump campaign and the the sessions uh department of justice directly gives them a better shot of not being investigated over this whole what i will call the russian watergate scandal and guys What's happening here? This is what happens in dictatorships. Mm-hmm. You get yep. rid of the opposition. Yep. That is what he's doing. And listen, I know a lot of people think that Trump is their savior, and you were going to find out a very hard and painful way that he is not. But if you care about anyone else besides your your, your income and your stock your stock market exchange numbers, even slightly, this is very dangerous and problematic because not only is he acting like a dictator, he is stupid. <laughs> Which means uh, like a sloppy dictator. No, he's just stupid. Like, <laughs> let's be honest about it. There's like a bunch of stupid white men running the country. Yeah. And that is dangerous. Do you know what stupid white men get done to people? They get you murdered. And then they walk away and go to the Margie Lago. And meanwhile, the one black person he finds to help him run the ben country. Ben Carson is not black. No, <laughs> no. Says that slaves came over as immigrants. Oh, that, so that's bad. another story. And that that is wages. another, yeah. Listen, attention. According. I have an announcement from the black delegation. The black delegation has traded Ben Carson. <laughs> For Rachel Dozal? 
Yes, and a bag of sour. <laughs> ben Carson is no longer black. You cannot go anywhere and say that slaves were immigrants so who were just underpaid. Did you so see the sense, meme? So I, I sent everybody a meme, and it was like Ben Carson logic. And first it was a slave ship, and it said immigrants. And then with the next one was um, a picture of a woman in a jail cell, and it said hotel room. Yeah, right. and, um, and then the next one was like a homeless person living over a grate, and it said camper. camper um, right. Because apparently that is Ben Carson logic. Guys, if you want to react to this, please give us a call. Our number is 212-650-6903. I also want to acknowledge that Miss Deborah called earlier. We couldn't get her on air, but she was talking about her own experience within working with women, um, Latina women and also white women. So, Miss Deborah, we heard you. We love you. Always call back. Yes. Marcella, I saw you reacting. Go ahead. Oh, <laughs> no, no. I, I, no. I mean, I <laughs> She's like, I can't like, even. It, it, That's like, get out. No, no, no. no. Yeah, no. I haven't seen it. Oh, um, so no. Good. And Stanley, Stanley knows that I think it's really taken me a long time to process our new reality. And I'm impressed that you've processed it. I'm still <laughs> I mean, trying to get that. I, well, okay, maybe I've I've gotten past just the fricatives and and <laughs> like outbursts mm-hmm. of anger. Yeah. But when you when you describe, I think the circus. It's it's hard literal to be- literal circus. It's hard. No, no, the circus is tamer than what's going and, on. Right and now. didn't you like retroactively register as a foreign agent after all? Oh, yeah. Something like, I mean, it's it's like you can't make it up. And it's when is enough enough? Right. You know, with, like when right. is un- unfortunately is enough is enough when Republicans say it's I, enough because they are the ones in power. And that pendulum just seems to kind of oh yeah go further right. Right. <laughs> well, guys. I have a friend that that compare he's like i love when people compare what's happening in the trump administration to watergate at least richard nixon founded the epa yeah (laughs) that's a really good point (laughs) guys we gotta switch gears this is now the hennessy report now the hennessy report we have some breaking news Uh Nicki minaj the artist formerly known as a rapper (laughs) the the person i thought she was alive she put out her her rebuttal right (gasps) she did no frauds it is yeah. hot doo-doo. It's bad. When? It is bad. I will play it on the next break for you. Ugh. You're not missing much. Can we play Sheether on the... We cannot. There's, <laughs> it got taken off because Uh-oh. she didn't get clearance. And also, every other word is B and mother yeah, effort. Right, right. And you smell and like... are you dumb? Like, yeah. bleep. Are you dumb? Are you dumb? It was a dud. Oh, so good. A dud. <laughs> Remy Ma. Remy Ma. <laughs> so, yes. Nicki Minaj Asbestos responded Maybe? to Remy Ma. On a song, and where she sings for the first thirty seconds, and Drake and Lil Wayne are also on a song, Whoa, but what? they don't even talk about Remy Ma at all. That's, yeah. I mean, I, I thought you revoked Lil Wayne's black card, also. Oh, <laughs> uh, he, he he's on drugs. It's okay. Does, I forgive him. Does he get his back? He's he's a, like a hardcore drug addict. You got he's sick, so you know. Okay, yeah. so I want to tell you about my favorite story this week as a lawyer <laughs> and a civil rights lawyer. Okay, you're okay. very Wait, excited. So apparently there was a guy, and he's an Uber driver, but he's an also a lawyer, and so he gets pulled yes, over. I know this. And when he gets pulled over, he takes out his phone and he starts recording yeah. the police officer who pulled him over. And the police yeah. officer starts to get really agitated about it and lies to him and <laughs> tells him that there's a law that just passed in Maryland that says that he cannot record the police. Side note, it's legal to record the police, although in certain circuits that right has not been clarified as being a definitive and affirmative right but in most circuits throughout the country now they have laid it out that you have a first amendment right to record the police so long as you do not interfere with the police's investigation or get too close to the police officer that you might be um, making him scared or her scared or interfering with uh, the police officer doing their job nonetheless so this cop thought he was going to run one over on this guy (laughs) who was just an Uber driver but this so called Uber driver was not 
not just an Uber driver, he was also a lawyer. And so when the officer said to him, you cannot record me, there's a law against that. And he said, I'm a lawyer. Um, I know of no <laughs> law against that. And so now this officer is now caught on the camera red-handed, basically with his hand in the cookie jar, lying about some fake law that did not even exist that said this guy could not record him. And of course, he was lying to the wrong person. And I would just love something like that to happen to me. Because if anybody <laughs> tried to tell me that that was a law, I would literally laugh in his face. <laughs> I, I, like, I would have had the same reaction as this guy. And I think it's even better that he was also dubbing as an Uber driver because it just speaks to the fact that a lot of lawyers, people who do civil rights law and the kind of law that me and this lawyer do, like we don't make the kind of money that right. corporate lawyers make. So like we might take a second job. Obviously, he works as an Uber driver. But, you know, police officers, you never know who you are going to encounter. Don't lie to people yeah, about right. the laws. Uh, you're going to get caught <laughs> and you're going to look even dumber for having done so. I Jackie. could I could just picture you watching that video being like, yes, yes. <laughs> I can't <laughs> wait. This is what I would do. <laughs> what I would do is you this. Know, you know what it reminds me of? Um, do you ever watch Beavis and Butthead? Of course. There's a like <laughs> oh, episodes of Beavis and Butthead where Beavis gets really excited and he starts like drooling at the TV <laughs> going, yes, yes. That <laughs> With that like crazy face. Yeah, that's exactly what happens <laughs> oh, when I see videos loves like that. justice so much. It makes her film it. Fun enough. fact. I, I actually justice. got pulled over in, on Friday night in an Uber. It was me and three... Th- Two of my guys. You got two pulled of my over guy friends. in an Uber? Yeah. They were like um, black guys in Uber. Pull yeah, it over. Three black guys in right. the Uber with like and like a Pakistani Pakistani guy, Pakistani guy. Um they pulled us over. What they didn't know was that I was the only non lawyer in that car. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> so they pulled over. They go, You know what you were doing? The Uber driver was like, No, I don't. And then they go, Can I see your ID? And he goes, Why? Nice. And they go, We don't have to tell you. And then my two lawyer friends were like, um, "Actually, you do." Blah 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 blah. Esquire, <laughs> yes, you do. Go like, drive safe. Yeah, right. <laughs> Have a good night. And that was that. You got lawyered. Bro. Yes, you got lawyered. Um, well, listen, yes. you know, two cops got uh, one cop this week, or in New York City, NYPD actually got convicted of lying on paperwork, uh, claiming that some mm. guy had attacked him. Meanwhile, there was a video camera that came out that showed that it was an out and out lie. He actually got convicted of perjury and on lying on oh, official filing. Is that it illegal is to lie when you're, you know, filling out legal paperwork uh, or under oath or, or in front of the that Senate? That is illegal. Um, <laughs> totally illegal. Oh, interesting. Oh, you so know, I should tell the Trump Somebody should tell the Attorney General <laughs> yeah. that you're not allowed to lie about whether or not you had contact with the Russians while you go to Congress and testify that I'm, you did I'm just it. checking. I just, I wasn't And you know, sure. you're the Attorney General, so stop, apparently... Stop questioning men, okay? <laughs> you know, I can't wait <laughs> for there to be like, I am not a crook moment because I feel like that's what's going on it's right now. Coming. Everybody in the Trump administration is like, I am not a crook. And then eventually they're going to have to get on a plane and give the peace sign and be like, actually, Bye. I am a crook. Oh, wait, that was Nixon because Nixon actually stepped down. You know what? I think the one thing that's not going to happen is nobody's stepping down because Trump's ego is way too big for that. So is Nicki Minaj's. Yeah. Jackie, here's your wish. Hey, yo. I don't want no frauds. Nicki Minaj, stop rapping because you sound trash, y'all. <laughs> she really stick to being a pop star. She's actually good at that. Yeah, Starships yeah. is a great song. <laughs> yeah, if really you are a 13 year old white woman, Nicki Minaj is for you. <laughs> <laughs> we are back on Let's Your Voice We Heard on 90.3 FM WHCR, the voice of Harlem. If you are just tuning in, this is Stanley Fritz. I'm here with Alyssa Fuchs, Jackie Cohen, and Marcella Barrientos <laughs> with the burgundy shirt. I see you out here, beloved. Mm. <laughs> 
And Jackie, of course, has an ugly scarf and an ugly jacket because she's a loser yeah. and no one likes her. Yeah. And Alyssa is beautiful as usual with a snap back pointed backwards because she's got that Obama post-presidency swag. <laughs> Before we jump to the next segment, can we talk about how fresh this man has been since he left the White House? Yeah, yes. still like the pop collar thing, walking yeah. around with his chest He's out. literally going like windboarding with billionaires. Like yes. he... Yeah, I mean, do you blame him? No, I would do exactly the same thing. When he was president, he was wearing high-waisted jeans and Christmas sweaters Mom every jeans, day. jeans, right? Yo, next, next thing you know, he's going to show up here at WHCR with a do-rag. He's going to be like, I'm here. I'm here. Obama What's is up? not going to do that. No, he, <laughs> he used to work no. here at City College. Oh, yes, he did. Yeah, yes, he did. What did he do? He, he was a project coordinator. And Stanley and Obama had the same job. That's right. We had the same oh. job at the same campus. So, you know, Obama, holla at us. Guy. We know you want to come on our show. Yes, please. Obama is going to look at you and, and, and be like, And Stanley's uh-huh. wearing a clown shirt. Yes, I'm actually. Thing. So, is that even clean? Stanley's Sandy Obama's like alternative timeline. Like, Obama won't. That's an alternative fact right here. I'm Obama if he discovered Hennessy and marijuana. Well, he, he knew about marijuana. He, he knew, knew a lot, lot about marijuana. Yeah. <laughs> He's part of the Choom Gang. Choom Gang. Mm, that's right. See, Obama knew about marijuana and all the other things, and that's why he knew there was a need for prescription medicine. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> yeah, so, guys, yeah. we're not going to be talking about Barack J. Kwan, Hussein Obama with the smooth brown leather jacket and we're the fitted jeans and the collars popped up. We are here to talk about the Agent Orange, a man formerly known as a human being, but actually a pile of old grapes and bad vegetables named Donald Trump. He and our Republican Party have put out their quote-unquote replacement for the Affordable Care Act. The or, world's greatest or, health plan. Or, or Obamacare, if you're nasty. The plan was mostly written by Paul Ryan, a man who once said, I want to make the government so small you can crush it with your finger, and who loves giving tax cuts to rich people. Mm. They came out with a plan. And let me tell you, the bill would gut the Affordable Care Act. It would slash Medicaid, take health coverage away from millions of Americans, between 6 to 10 million, they're saying right now. Mm. And if that wasn't enough, it would be a $257 billion tax cut to the 0.1 and the 1%. If you're not sure what that means, right now in the world, 0.1 and 1% of, the peop- of people in this world have more money then about 40% of the people in the world, period, they will get those tax cuts. They will get those tax cuts. Meanwhile, they will turn successful programs like Medicaid into a block grant program or instead of just like the Medicaid covering your, your doctor visit and your medicine, no, each state would just get a big chunk of money and they would decide how to spend that. So if it works the way they want to work and they don't require the states to use it for medicine, Medicaid, which they don't plan to, the state could take that money to fill up other budget gaps and then you just wouldn't have any money to go to the doctor or your grandma or anyone else who was under that plan. They're, they're saying that this makes health insurance more free. It gives more freedom. It gives you the freedom to choose your doctor, but it actually doesn't. It says that it's going to allow people to stay on health ins- on their parents' insurance until they're 26, but there's really no way to enforce that. And it gets rid of the individual mandate, which mandates that everyone has health insurance because that takes away freedom. And what they do now in order to like have something to sort of pay for it is if you don't have insurance and you get sick and then you try to get insurance, they'll charge you extra but up to 30% more than a regular price. Oh, and it also allows insurance companies to charge older people more, and it allows for higher bonuses for insurance insurance executives. You guys excited? 
I'm so, so excited. I'm just so angry. I am so angry. Let's let's let, let's react to this, guys. If you want to react as well, the number is 212-650-6903. 212-650-6903. Of course, Facebook Live. Alyssa, hit us. All right. So, you know, there was an article this week in the New York Times, and Maureen Dowd probably said it better than I could say it. I'm not going to read her article word for word. You should go check it out, but I'll paraphrase it. She said that uh, essentially what the Republicans are offering is um, just like a Janis Joplin song, free. <laughs> Freedom is just another word for nothing left to lose. Um, and so really what this bill is, is that it's freedom for people who are very wealthy to pay less taxes because, mm-hmm. you know, screw those poor people. Mm-hmm. And it's freedom for those who can afford to buy health insurance to say, yeah, you know, I'm not going to buy it. I'm just going to risk getting sick so that when I do need health care, you know, then I'll buy it and it will cost you all a lot less money. Uh, I'm sorry, a lot more money. Yeah. And it's freedom for the government to say, hey, you know, we don't really want to support Medicaid anymore. So we're just going to give a block grant to the states and let them sort it out. And, you know, it's freedom for employers to say, eh, you know, we don't really feel like providing <laughs> you with health insurance anymore. And, you know, freedom for health insurance companies to say, hey, let's hike your rates because, you know, you had a pre-existing condition. Um, and, you know, so if we're going to have to provide you cover, then we're just going to coverage. We're just going to charge you a lot of money for it. You know, freedom of access, because, of course, they just want to make sure that you can access health insurance, not that you <laughs> actually can afford to buy it. And the the biggest joke in all of this is what they call this health care plan. Because as if we were in some kind of dystopian reality, oh wait, we, we are. We literally um, are. It is now being called, and I swear to God on this, go look it up, the world's greatest health care plan of 2017. <laughs> the world's greatest health care plan that gives you less coverage for more money. Yay, Trump so, care! Someone told me that's what it was called, and I did not believe them, and I was like, you are clearly screwing with me and then I went on the like legislative retrieval site for for Congress and that's literally what it is called. It is whack. Oh, yeah. There, there's just one more thing that I want to add. So the one freedom that, of course, you don't have because Republicans hate this freedom <laughs> is the freedom to get an abortion because, you know, that's an issue. So you got freedom for lots of other things that the government is not allowed to get involved in your health care about because, you know, the government shouldn't get between you and your doctor unless you want to get an abortion. <laughs> and then, of course, the government should be so far up your vagina that it sees your uterus. So, Alyssa, you're on fire. I want to get the rest of the panel involved in this. And I'm going to pick up on this abortion piece that you mentioned. So a part of this plan, what they would also so do what they would strip funding from Planned Parenthood. Com- mm-hmm. So, and wh- what that means is technically it's not really funding. It's Planned Parenthood can get reimbursed for doing certain procedures. Obviously, they're not getting funding for doing abortion procedures, but that's pr- that they don't really. That's not what they usually do. They're giving health insurance for, for women in poor communities and women anywhere really in the United States. And some of this, some of this service they provide can get reimbursed through Medicare and Medicaid. So, th- what they're saying is we're going to stop that from happening. But if you stop giving abortions, then maybe yeah. we'll keep it. Right. So they, they were basic. Planned Parenthood was basically told, we'll keep your funding intact if you drop abortion from your services. And they said no. Which, which is, is less than 3% of what they do anyway. Which is less than 3% of what they do anyway. And good for them because they shouldn't have to make that choice. And I, I certainly will support them as much as I can financially <laughs> for keeping that an option. Um, but that was the choice that they were left with. And it really put them, I think, in a in a difficult financial position, but I don't think that they had to think twice about about denying that so, offer. Marcella, you've been pretty quiet. I'm going to throw you into this conversation. So we're talking about shipping health care from people. We're talking about giving people more freedom. As someone who, you know, we don't, we don't know your health history, but like how important has health care been for like you or people that you know, your friends and family? I, I just think to go after 
in some cases the most vulnerable because yeah. there's a lot of yeah. elderly people who, 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 you know, aren't working anymore. And, and this was a way to kind of gain access to health care is sickening. Yeah. <laughs> and when you literally. Th- literally. literally and when you think about the myth of, of America, you know, we're like this amazing country and so much progress to literally strip away uh, health care. It, it, it's like, is this real? Even if this was a myth, even if we were sold this myth, how how can we then even think about what this might right. look like in 10, 20 years, if, if this were to pass, right? Um, and, and that's the part that's, I think, really concerning. And I think also, in, and I do think El Chancho, which is what I call Trump, the pig. Yes. Um, <laughs> I love it. Uh, it has been kind of like a civics education for a lot of people because I don't think everyone knows how much their daily lives are impacted by policy and legislation. And when you realize, wait a minute, and I mean, and I always love the, the kind of example with Kansas where they didn't call it Obamacare. They called it something else. It was like Kentucky Care. I don't know, something like that. Kentucky Connect. It's Kentucky, right. right. And so people are like, yeah, let's get rid of Obamacare. Let's do this thing. And it's like, boo, it's Kentucky well, Care. Right, right. <laughs> like, you know, they say that the numbers have come out showing that the people who are going to be affected most by the repeal of the health care law are actually Trump voters. Yeah. 650,000 so, people you know, from I mean, Kentucky listen, they have... Guys, 650,000 people from Kentucky actually got their coverage of Obamacare yep. who are at risk of losing a jacket. I saw your hand raised. Yeah, so and, and you. there's been a disparity between p- people who support the Affordable Care Act and are at the very same time against Obamacare, which is a pl- which, is, which means that <laughs> Republicans were wildly successful yeah. in their messaging and their mm-hmm. attacks against Obama. Um, but I, I think, Marcel, you're absolutely right. At the end of the day, we're talking about a, a basic human yeah. right uh, to, you know it should be a basic human right to health care and it's something that as the United States we can afford to provide people people shouldn't have to beg to be able to see a doctor and shouldn't have to sacrifice a meal to <laughs> be able to pay for a copay right I mean this is really ridiculous and something that we should be able to offer our citizens and yet we don't and you know at the end of the day you're not allowed to take a car on the road without insurance right <laughs> you're not allowed to buy a house without buying insurance you should have to have insurance you should be insured as a u.s citizen um if especially if we can afford it and you know at the end of the day unless you're perfectly healthy and then you get hit by a bus and die like everybody gets sick that we are all human i don't care how rich or poor you are every single person is a human being who is susceptible to illness um and it shouldn't be the wealthy that have access to better health care than the poor well, I mean, yeah, and then that's exactly why, well, two things. Number one, it's clear that Paul Ryan, the person who's, uh, you know, got a lot of words to say but is short on any actual policy sure. details, doesn't understand how insurance works to begin with. He said this week, why should healthy people subsidize sick people? Like, this is exactly how, how insurance works. works. It's like when your house is not on fire, you pay for homeowner's insurance, and then if somebody's house does go on fire, the insurance company takes the money that you paid in and they give that money to the person who had a, their house go up in flames in order to, to cover them because they also paid mm-hmm. for insurance. So that's exa- one, that's exactly how insurance works. Number two, it also forgets the exact reason why Obamacare was passed to begin with, which was before we had Obamacare and people were not covered, when something happened, when they got sick, when they had an emergency, they would go to the emergency room. And when they went to the emergency room and they could not afford to pay that bill, that bill would end up having to get picked up by Medicare mm-hmm. or by 
Medicaid. And so that led to a situation where Medicare and Medicaid spending was exploding because people were using emergency rooms as their regular doctor's office. So the reason Obamacare was passed in the first instance mm. was to make it such that people had to get health insurance, even if it was a minimum amount of coverage, in order to reduce the amount of money that was coming out of Medicare and Medicaid, which was going to pay for people who were using the hospital and the emergency room as their doctor to begin with. And so basically that was the whole reason you had to pay into the individual mandate. So if they get rid of the individual mandate, we're going to end up back in a situation mm -hmm. where healthcare spending under Medicaid and Medicare is going to start growing again. As you might may or may not know, healthcare spending has actually gone down. Now, obviously, the cost of premiums haven't because Obamacare did not do a good enough job of controlling costs, which is why it needs some fixes. But if they were to get rid of it completely and we were to go back to the old system, you're going to see the healthcare spending start to increase exponentially again. So thank you for all the information, Alyssa. So I saw Marcella up. I'm going to get to you, Marcella, then you, Jackie. Then I have a new question. So Marcella? Yeah, no. And actually, you reminded me of this thing. When I was uh, 20, I was in Spain for the summer, and I got really sick. And my host mother was like, we have to take you to the doctor. And I'm like, no. Yeah. <laughs> like, I have no idea how much this is going to cost. She looked at me. She's like, nothing. Where, where, do you, where, where are you from? What do you mean how much it's going to cost? Yeah. You know, and so we're talking about the sanctity of life. And, and sure enough, I was able to go to the doctor, and I was just mesmerized by this notion of like I, I don't I'm not even a citizen how, right. how am I granted this this and it's just a human rights issue I think you know the access to and and providing um, health care and the other thing is thinking about social um, you know social nets and a lot of the time and somebody said this to me recently we really get upset about having to go do our taxes yeah like oh god I might have to pay or you know like why do <laughs> no. I have to unless get, you're Donald get Trump. taxes to you unless you're Donald yeah, Trump right, right? Um, and so I, I really wrapped my head around this. I'm like, wait a minute. As as someone who considers themselves pretty lefty and a union organizer, I should be excited to go pay my taxes or to do my taxes or that taxes are taken out. Yeah. Because it means on a rainy day, my act of solidarity can impact somebody else's life. Absolutely. The same way on a rainy day in my life because you've all pitched in. And I think that, okay, dare I say it, socialism? <laughs> <You know>? What? <laughs> it's a scary thing. But, but I think that, that, you know, to get excited about the idea that we're creating a, a social net for our country so that we can strive both as, as humans and as citizens, I'm, I'm going to take great pride in that yeah. and not shy away from it. So, Jackie? I mean, to give a personal example, I, I went, um, I am on birth control, um, yay. and yay, scandalous. <laughs> um, in college, I went Jesus off birth watching. control because it was really expensive. Mm. It was really, really expensive, and um, you know, I didn't see I, it didn't seem like a priority to me, so I wasn't on it. And I went off of it. Um, it was I think like sixty dollars a month Ooh. for my copay. It was like something wild. I mean, I probably could have figured out something to pay less, but you know, I was in college. I didn't have time to like sit on the phone with the insurance company. Um, it wasn't even my insurance that I was paying for, and I, I just went off birth control. Um, Obamacare started. Birth control was offered to me for free. Yay. And it was like, it wasn't this thing where I was like, oh, I'm sick and I need this mm. thing. It was just like, you know what? This is something I want. This is a choice I want to make for myself. And now I have access to it. And, you know, this is preventing or uh, enabling me to live the kind of mm. life I want to live. And, you know, I'm not ready by any means to be a mother. I would like to be one one day, but I'm not ready right now. And now I have access to this thing that I, I so desperately want and need, right? And and many other people do as well. So I think to, to Marcella's point, this is like, all of us are benefiting from this, right? This is about being a human being and, you know, getting sick or needing birth control or needing services and not having to weigh, not having to 
put yourself in a position where you get really sick or get into a desperate situation, you, you just have access to this thing. You can take it, you know, we shouldn't take it for granted that we've had it, um, but that you can get healthcare when you need it. I mean, that shouldn't be something that you have to like weigh all the pros and cons for before you seek it. I have a question for you guys. This one is a bit more personal, so feel free to pass if you're uncomfortable. This bill passes. How does that impact you? Um, Alyssa, yeah, I mean, so it definitely uh, it would definitely impact me. I obviously get insurance through the exchange because I work for a small business. They don't have to provide me insurance. So I do buy my insurance now because I make too much money to get the subsidy. I'm already not getting a subsidy at all, which means that it won't affect me necessarily monetarily. But what could happen is these. So. The thing that Republicans talked about a lot with in terms of Obamacare was death spirals, that if enough people stop, don't sign up or if too many sick people sign up and not enough healthy people sign up, mm-hmm. that eventually the insurance companies will pull out of the exchanges and the exchanges will go into a death spiral. Now, that was not actually happening until Republicans took steps to make it such that it would happen. So essentially, Republicans are trying to kill this law because they are not repealing it right now. They've talked about changing it. Obviously, the Senate says that the House bill may be dead on arrival, and that's something we can talk about later on in this segment. Um, But because right now they have not actually repealed it yet, they've nonetheless done everything in their power to make it so that it stops functioning the way that it should. So... If they, um, if the law starts spiraling out of control because of some of these changes that they make to it, like getting rid of the individual mandate, and the death spiral actually happens, and all these insurers pull out, then the Obamacare marketplace is going to collapse, and then I'm going to have nowhere to buy health insurance, mm-hmm. which means I am essentially going to lose my health insurance. So it will affect, affect me directly, um, the changes that are made. Now, like I said, that's not to say Obamacare is perfect. There are some changes that need to be made, but the changes that Republicans are talking about making are essentially to make Obamacare fail not Mm. to fix it Jackie I mean I don't know exactly I would assume that um, that premiums will go up and that co-pays and certainly medications that I am on will become more expensive and I can't imagine that birth control is going to be kept at a covered rate it it will be covered at all so that will be that alone is a huge is a huge cost that I'll will then have to pay (sighs) (laughs) <laughs> I mean, I, 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 well, me personally, um, I get insurance. I've luckily I've always got insurance through my employer, so mm-hmm. I've never had to um, deal with that challenge. But I also think about all of my friends who are actors yeah. and artists, yeah. and and um, you know, you, it's a struggle. And I think to take away the little bit of, of a safety or social net that w- was able to be created in the short amount of time that it was is really scary because now we're talking about the quality of life of not just ourselves but the people around us. Totally. I can't think of – I can't even begin to tell you how many people I know that use Planned Parenthood yeah. as a critical resource, not just for um, – you know, I know many people that went on birth control thanks to Planned Parenthood, but I know many people that seek – Planned Parenthood as their primary mm-hmm. care, right? And so to defund this critical service for so many people is, you know, that I know, I mean, it's really scary to think about. Yeah. So, you know, one of the people that we know personally who is usually on the show, our main host, yeah. Nina Hill, Nina. she was on, like, she got it, she was able to get insurance through Obamacare because she didn't have a job that yeah. was offering mm-hmm. health insurance. That was literally a lifesaver for her. And thankfully, she qualified for subsidies, so she didn't have to pay much. What, ha- what happens to her now that this is repealed? These are the kind of people I think about. My dad gets Medicaid because he retired. Yeah. What happens now when you give it to the state to give grant, like to figure oh out how much God. money you're going to get? 
and my, my dad has diabetes. Like he has all these things he has to pay for. They're expensive. That depends what state you're in. That's yeah. those are the kind of things I worry about. But guys, we do have to go on a quick break. When we come back, I want to have a conversation about if we were in Congress and Senate and President. What kind of law will we have? If we had that kind of power, what would health insurance look like under our administration? This is Let Your Voice Be Heard. Hanging on the passenger. Just kidding. Guys, we are back (laughs) on Let Your Voice Be Heard on 90.3 FM WHCR, the voice of Harlem. If you are just tuning in, this is Stanley Fritz with Marcella Barrientos, (laughs) Jackie Cohen, and of course, Alyssa Mudlove and Fuchs. Selena Hill could not be here today. She had to fly to the Phoenix of Arizona. I don't know why anyone would travel to Arizona because it's it's really hot. It's actually really nice, though. They have beautiful architecture over there, so I'll say that. Now, if you don't know what we're talking about, we are talking about the Republican parties and Donald Trump's endorsed plan to replace the Affordable Care Act. And it is called, I think, as Alyssa said, the greatest health The plan. world's greatest <laughs> health plan of 2017 because Republicans are trolling us. The exactly. The world's greatest. And now, like, some of the things that you guys may, may or may not know about this, that if this bill is passed, between 6 to 10 million people, and that's lowballing it right now, would lose their health insurance. They also know that it would cut Medicaid funding and give states the power to allocate how much money you would need therefore turning medicaid into a block grant program it would get rid of the individual mandate but find you if you didn't get insurance until you were sick and it is a lot of other things that makes us really sad republicans hate it democrats hate it it's being fast-tracked through congress because paul ryan and donald trump wanted to happen and they're pushing it so fast because the congressional budget office has like hasn't had a chance to get the numbers on how impactful it would be and they don't want to give it that chance so so far it's been through two committees and it looks like it's going to sail through and then when it goes to the senate that's a different conversation so what we want to do is talk about the politics of this actual bill and i want to start with jackie how likely is it do you think of this bill actually being passed and becoming law it, of the land it will happen i mean it will right like the the congress it's up for a floor vote well, right? yeah, in the House, though. Then the Senate says it's dead on arrival, that they won't pass that bill. Really? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I guess a lot of criticism, I mean, obviously Democrats are violently against this because obviously, A, people are going to lose their health insurance. B, they want to protect Obama's legacy, and this does a lot to dismantle that. Um, but I, I've heard criticism that um, Republicans are against this because it still offers anything. And yeah. they think that it's too similar to the Affordable Care Act. How to much pass of a it. piece of garbage do you have to be to feel I that mean, way? Who like, votes these people? In? I mean, you know, it's, it's like at the end of the day, you the know. The people who are going to lose their health insurance. Well, yeah, right. Like the, That's at, who. At the end of the day, this this bill mm. has this ridiculous name and the Republicans are literally trolling us and they think they're very funny and they're, you know, laughing at how, like, funny they are by trolling the United States. But at the end of the day, people are going to die. Yep. Like, people are going to lose their health insurance. I have a, I have a friend that has been speaking out um, in favor of the Affordable Care Act and protecting it who has an amazing story she lost her job her parents were like you know what you should enroll in the new york exchange just do it she's like uh like i'll wait till you know cobra was like 700 dollars a month mm. she was like i'll wait till um i get a new job i you know i have a social worker i will get a new job um and she did get a new job you know i think a couple months after she lost her first one um and in the meantime signed up for the new york exchange about a week later realized she had a lump on her neck and before she i think around the same day that she started her new job she had been going through testing for um you know that month or two month period and found out that she had lymphoma Mm -hmm. um and you know she very much thinks that if she had even waited a month before she was able to see a doctor how much would that growth have expanded how much sicker would she have gotten and because she was able to catch it the time that she did i mean cancer can grow very quickly and she literally 
it saved her life. Signing up for the New York Exchange saved her life. She would not have had insurance and not have sought out a doctor. She just would have waited, right? Which a lot of people do. They're like, oh, I'll wait till I really, really need it. And by that time, it's often too late. So it's, you know, it, Republicans want to troll us with this title and they want to joke around and think it's really funny. Like, People are going to die, and you Republicans who are passing this through Congress will be responsible. Growing up, there was this thing that we would do in my house. If you got sick, this is before Obamacare passed. If you if you got sick or you hurt yourself, just rub some cocoa butter on it because we don't got hospital money. We had Vicks. That's what. That's just what yeah. we did. That's all I wanted to say. You can go ahead and look. Oh, well, you know that Paul Ryan's plan is just pray it away. Pray, pray until the, the pray. cancer goes away pray or something away. like that. Or the um, Because, you know, that totally works. But, you know, like the, the politics of this are actually really interesting because of the fact that you have have a midterm election coming up in 2018. There's obviously some infighting in the Senate. There are some Republicans like Rand Paul, like you pointed out, that don't think the law goes far enough. They want what they call a clean repeal, which is to go back to the system that we had before and to get rid of this completely. There are other Republicans that are afraid that if so many people, if this doesn't work out well and it goes badly, which it will, um, and people lose their health insurance during an election year, during 2018, that people are going to blame them for that and then that they are going to lose their seats. So there are some Republicans that are saying, like, slow down. We don't want to do this so fast because we don't. We know that it can have an impact on whether or not we get elected in 2018. I was reading a really interesting article in the Washington Post last week that said that the best idea would be the plan B. And the plan B is essentially to do nothing. It's to say that you are going to do something and to constantly ramp up that, oh, we're taking these symbolic votes and doing these symbolic things, but to actually not do anything. And for the House to set up a bill that the Senate will never pass and for the Senate to set up a bill that the House will never pass and to essentially wait because right now what ends up happening is if they do something if they make these changes and the changes go bad which they will because this is a massive transfer of wealth to the wealthy and away from poor people and so people are going to die as Jackie points out and a lot of Trump voters in particular are going to be affected by this directly and they are then going to have to deal with that backlash when voters go to the poll in 2018 On the other hand, if they do nothing and they just sort of subtly take steps to make Obamacare fail on its own and for the law to start death spiraling out um, by taking these steps that they may take short of actually peel, passing a repeal and replace plan, then if the law does fail, they can blame Democrats and then they are off the hook and it will not impact them so much during 2018. So there may be a situation where there's a lot of talk, but there's not actually a lot of action because at the end of the day, there are going to be political blowback depending on what they do. And people at the end, like, are not stupid. I mean, for example, um, actually, you know, I'm going to throw it back to Stanley, but then I'll give you some examples of how this might impact certain people and how that may impact them going out to vote. Yeah, so let's, yeah, let's move the conversation I, forward. Go ahead. I Randy. don't think that Republicans would like you calling this Plan B. I don't think they're a big fan of Plan mm-hmm. B in general. <laughs> I don't think they want you to have access well, to Plan B. I'm going to keep Trump care because yeah. you know they hate that Republic too. Republican care is what Trump I would call it. Republican care. Yeah, and, and, you know, while, yes, all of this, everything, uh, you know, Alyssa said is true, I, I, I want us to, us, I'm sorry, wow, I am waking up. I also want us <laughs> to step back a little bit because I think one of the um, core issues in this country is that health is a for-profit industry, yeah. unlike many other nations. And that is is i think part of what 
we're seeing manifest, not just right now, but has been the history in the, in this country. So I think to really, you know, your initial question was like, what would you do if you had the magic wand type of question? And that is I would regulate yeah. the health industry. And who was that little troll who was like, I have the <laughs> EpiPen, but I'm going to charge $300 for it. You know, right. I had a moment where I was like, what if the doctor who invented the cure for polio <laughs> was alive now? Yeah. <laughs> you know, like these are, these are questions that... Again, it's about economics, and it's not about the welfare of our country. It's right. not about the well-being, and and that's the I think the po- the, the problem in terms of there's lack of regulation. Why can't we just have single payer? Well, that's would that would be my preferred course Likewise. of action. Why, but like, we can't have single payer because we can't have nice things because America, America, <laughs> because before the affordable, before the Affordable Care Act passed, forty five thousand people mm-hmm. a year were dying because of. Lack of access to health insurance. Yeah. That's a real number. And isn't it? No, 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 don't you know under the Republican plan, they're going to have access. That doesn't mean they can afford it, right. but they're going to have universal access. Yeah. And isn't our, like, uh, a birth death rate really high? Yeah, yeah. yeah it is. Yeah. Child mortality rate? Right. Child like, mortality rate. We're, like, yeah. we're number one with that. <laughs> Go in the America. World. Yeah. I don't know. America! <laughs> <laughs> first or last. <laughs> so, and, 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 and that's my question, because I, I think you hit the nail on the head with this conversation about people making health a profit thing. If we got universal health care, there would have to be a monumental rise in taxes. And that means that everyone would have to pay more. Not just the 1%, which we want to, but middle, middle and working class families as well. But, you know, a lot of people say that, but they don't address it in context. Let me explain something to you about that, which is, put it this way. Let's say right now you are spending $455 a month for your premiums, okay? And let's say the government comes along and they say, listen, Rather than spending $455 a month, your taxes are going to go up $150 a month or $200 a month. Well, do the math. What's $455 minus $200? It actually is going to save you money. It's going to cost you less money to pay $200 more in taxes but not have to pay a premium and being given health care than if you were to pay the premium to begin with. So that's the thing that people don't do a good job of explaining (laughs) when they explain single-payer health care, which is, yes, your taxes are going to go up, but you are no longer going to have to pay a deductible, right. a copay, a premium, all these costs that they hit you with. I mean, look at my health insurance. I pay four hundred. I pay $536 a month in premium. I have a $600 deductible, which means the first $600 of my care comes out of pocket. I have to pay a $40 copay every time I go to a specialist. I have to pay a $25 copay every time I go to my regular doctor. You know, I got a health care tax deduction because I just went to the accountant last Saturday, and I spent over $7,000 when you combine all that money paying for health care this year alone. If they were to take $200 of taxes more out of my paycheck, but I didn't have to pay copays, deductibles, premiums, all of that, it would actually save me money. So people hear socialism and they hear higher <laughs> taxes and they get scared. Somebody needs to sit down and break it down to them and yeah. say, actually, it's going to cost you less. Yeah, I but think I, you just did that. But I think, <laughs> exactly. I think, though, that Marcella brought this point up before. That at the end of the day, our... our uh, Healthcare industry in this country, it's an industry, right? It's a very lucrative industry. Farm, big pharma is a very lucrative industry. So at the end of the day, we're not going to get this until we regulate, but are we going to actually regulate in this country that's profiting so much on healthcare and insurance and pharmaceuticals? And I don't see, even if everybody gets it, I think that big industries are going to fight this tooth and nail oh. to, to delude people into thinking that they're getting ripped off when actually they're not. And, and how crazy is it that, you know, we will feel outraged at the idea of having paid taxes for, you know, health insurance or universal, whatever, healthcare. Yet, 
I, we're not outraged about the amount of money that is allocated towards our military. I mean, just imagine. Right, I, right. Mean, I, I always think of the visual of the guy who does the example with the Oreo cookies. Yeah. He's like, two cookies for like education, two cookies for right. health. And then it's like 10 cookies for right. military spending. Just imagine if we took, I don't know, two or three of those cookies and allocate them in other areas and people aren't outraged i mean people are so against giving the government money but they are so willing to pay astronomical fees to to healthcare providers to um, pharmaceutical companies so this money is going somewhere right and you're willing to spend way more to to make people very very rich than you are to pay into a system that would benefit everybody and make everybody healthier and safer Thank you so much for that, Jackie. Guys, that was a really great, great conversation. We do have to wrap up the, the topic now, and I want to throw it to Alyssa to kind of give us some closing remarks. Yeah, so basically what I'll say to you is, you know, you do have a lot to lose under this. Just to give mm-hmm. you a little breakdown, um, and this could be found in the New York Times today, um, you know, some people will do better under this new plan. For example, if you're a 50-year-old single man who lives in <laughs> Illinois and owns a plumbing business making $75,000 a year, you would get more in tax credits under the Republican plan. That's On the other hand, if you are 35, and you do intermittent construction work in Indiana, you and you were insured through Medicaid, there's a chance you may eventually lose your Medicaid coverage because who knows what the state's going to have in that block grant. If you're a 28-year-old who was recently laid off from a higher-paying job and now you work at Dunkin' Donuts in California, you might receive less money in tax subsidies and could be penalized for having a lapse in coverage. So this is going to affect everybody. Oh, and by the way, if you're a 40-year-old lawyer with two kids who makes over $250,000, you're going to see able to save money because there's nothing like taking that health care away from poor people while giving a bigger tax cut to those who are already making yeah. more money. I mean, essentially what we have to realize is this Republican plan is socialism, but it's reverse socialism. Mm. It Instead of transferring money from the richest people in the country to the people at the bottom, it essentially is reverse Robin Hoodism. Isn't it, it tra- like oligarchies? Though? Yeah, it transfers <laughs> money from the bottom to the people at the top. This is not a health care plan. This is an abomination. On that note, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, I'll tell you about another abomination, also known as the new Muslim ban. And we are back, and we are not at the Copacabana, unfortunately. But if we were at the Copacabana, I would be having a cocktail, a really <laughs> nice cocktail, preferably something with vodka and ginger beer and lime, which is also called a Moscow Mule. Yummy. <laughs> Uh, because, you know, I like to hang out with Putin. Oh, wait, no, 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 that's Donald <laughs> Trump. You know what else Donald Trump likes to do? He likes to issue Muslim bans and then say they're not Muslim bans and then walk them back and then eventually decide, like, okay, maybe I won't defend that in court anymore. I'll just issue a new one. So what am I talking about? Well, back in January, Donald Trump signed an executive order that banned people from seven countries from entering the U.S. He claimed it was not a Muslim ban, but, of course, his best friend Giuliani went on TV and said it was a Muslim ban, and then that got introduced introduced in court and then the courts were like um oopsie maybe we should tell rudy giuliani to shut up and stop telling the truth about what these things really are because we want to tell people something different um and so this executive order went into effect right away it created mass confusion mass hysteria people of course flocked to airports to protest lawyers flocked to airports and immediately began filing lawsuits and habeas corpus petitions and eventually the ninth circuit put a nationwide hold on this executive order um so the Trump administration, they could have appealed that and it could have gone up to the Supreme Court, but then they decide 
eh, you know, we might lose that one. And there's one thing that Donald Trump hates more than anything else, and that's losing. So they decided, you know what, we're not going to defend that one anymore. We're just going to stop that one. We're going to say, yeah, we're going to walk that back and we're going to issue another one. Um, So this executive order that Trump signed in January set up a framework to make permanent changes to the way the U.S. admitted visa holders and refugees from other countries by raising the standards for what information these countries had to provide about citizens that were seeking U.S. visas. It blacklisted countries that could not provide this information, and it cut in half the number of refugees that the U.S. would admit over the next year. While the government worked on those permanent changes, the old executive order, a.k.a. the old Muslim ban, also set up temporary changes, such as a 90-day hold on admitting any national from seven countries that were majority Muslim nations. There was a 120-day hold on admitting any refugees who were not, quote-unquote, religious minorities, of course, Muslims excluded, um, And that is the part of the ban that caused this mass airport chaos and attracted the attention of the public and the courts. Now, the new version of this Muslim ban slash executive order was signed Monday, leaves in place the long-term process to restrict visas and refugee admissions, but the temporary measures, the one that caused so many problems, were much more limited. The uh, original executive order applied to people living in the United States on visas from blacklisted countries and even in the beginning to the green card holders. The new order applies only to people who have not yet been issued visas. In theory, this should prevent the chaos that the initial executive order caused at the airports and around the world because anybody boarding a plane to enter the U.S. that already has a visa will, in theory, still be able to enter the U.S. when they get here versus the last time around where people who had visas and then they landed and then the U.S. government was like, oops, so sorry, can't come in. (laughs) Um, The new version also drops Iraq from the 90-day blacklist. This is because there was a lot of lobbying done by the Iraqi government essentially to say, hey, wait, We helped you MFers out all the time during the Iraq war. And some of these people put their lives at risk against the Taliban, against al-Qaeda, against ISIS, or what was previously a group that then became ISIS. And now you're going to tell this person that was a translator for the U.S. military that he can't come in because of this ban? Like, what's wrong with you? So, of course, the U.S. government had to be like, "Uh, actually, yeah, we'll take Iraq off that list. Uh, So what's going to happen next? Starting on March 16th, which is four days from today, the federal government will no longer issue new visas to people from Iran, Libya, Somalia, Sudan, Syria, or Yemen. However, the order does not restrict people from any other country entering the U.S., and it does not restrict people from those countries Mm. who have already received their visas from entering the U.S. That is the major difference between the new Muslim ban and the old Muslim ban. In addition, the 120-day ban on refugees has now been streamlined. The government will no longer allow members of persecuted religious minorities to settle in the U.S. during this refugee pause. The reason they did that is because it prioritized Christians, and so that was one piece of evidence that people are looking at going, hey, wait, but you're allowing Christians in, but you're not allowing Muslims in. So it must be a Muslim ban. And so the federal government wanted to be like, no, it's not a Muslim (laughs) ban. So now, of course, they had to take that out altogether so that they could sort of credibly say it's not a Muslim ban, although many people are still arguing it is a Muslim ban, uh, myself included. On the other hand, the executive order will no longer place an indefinite ban on admitting Syrian refugees, which means after 120 days, as long as they pass the screen Meth- uh, methods and mechanisms that are going to in place, refugees from Syria will, in theory, be allowed to get in. I say in theory because, you know, 
they could be screened and the government could say, yeah, we're not letting you in anyway. Um, the longer term consequences of this executive order and the changes to policy um, that will be in place 121, sorry, 120 days from now are essentially exactly the same as those in the first ban. The government is still going to produce a list of countries that cannot be trusted, that need to provide additional information to the U.S., and people from those countries will be indefinitely blacklisted. However, this is very, very similar from something that the Obama administration actually did that not really anybody said a peep about, which is the executive branch has a wide authority to say, we are going to put a hold on issuing visas. And that is to say, which is, if you are not already holding a visa and you have not already started the application process for a visa and you now today decide you want to get a visa, the federal government can say, well, we're just not issuing any visas to anybody in that region. And the Obama administration actually did that for a little while. And there was never any court challenge about that because at any time, the executive branch actually has a lot of power to say, we are or we are not going to issue visas from this certain region of the world. And as long as you have not already been issued a visa and are not already on your way here or have already been told that you have permission to enter, that does not create a lot of the problems that this otherwise would create. And so essentially the Trump administration is now trying to model this new ban in such a way that it is modeled very similar to the things that Obama did. And the reason why they are doing that is because they have a feeling that that will withstand legal scrutiny that their former ban could not withstand. So that is a big thing that we are seeing. Um, In addition, the new ban will only admit half as many refugees as the Obama administration originally had planned to admit. Um, This executive order, as I mentioned, will not cause as much chaos because it does not strip visas from people who currently have them. Um, However, it does blacklist people from getting them. Um, That said, people may still get detained at airports, but this will not be uh, necessarily because of the ban. This will be because of the aggression that we are now seeing Customs and Border Patrol agents having under the Trump administration, which is to say they feel empowered to aggressively detain and question people because Donald Trump is the president. The same way we see people empowered to commit hate crimes and empowered to draw swastikas and empowered to say racist things that they may have said at home Mm. and family dinner, but they were not saying outwardly, which now they feel like they can say outwardly because, you know, Donald Trump is the president, and that has now given them the license to be outwardly racist. Um, Now, the new executive order is guaranteed to be challenged in court, just like the original was. In fact, Hawaii has already filed a lawsuit against it, but as I pointed out, it's going to be much easier to defend this new action in court because the president has a lot of authority with respect to immigration, and because it is similar to what Obama did when they put a halt to issuance of visas from certain places in the world. In a in addition, non-citizens have some rights in the U.S., but different groups of non-citizens have different legal rights. For example, if you are a legal permanent resident, you have more due process rights under the Constitution. One of the biggest problems was with the first order, legally speaking, was that it deprived those immigrants, as well as visa holders living in the U.S., the ability to return to America. Meaning if you lived here and you traveled to Iran for a conference and then you were coming back to your home where you lived, you were not allowed back in the country. Um, Now, this new executive order only applies to people who have never, ever, ever been admitted to the U.S. at all. And when it comes to visa holders, legally speaking, those people have essentially no constitutional rights because constitutional rights only apply to American citizens or those on American soil. So if you do not have any legal status, you are not an American citizen and you are not already physically here on American soil, then you essentially have no constitutes 
constitutional rights whatsoever, which means you might not even be able to sue. And you have to rely on other people like your employer, like the university that is sponsoring you for the visa to sue on your behalf. Um, And so that leads to a situation where the Trump administration can essentially argue that you are not being deprived of your rights because you do not have any rights in this context. And so that is going to make it essentially much more difficult. Um, I think the takeaway from this before I end what you should know is this is still a Muslim ban. There's still a lot of evidence out there to show that we are discriminating against people, not just based on these six countries, but based on the fact that they're Muslim, because the majority of people coming from these six countries are, in fact, Muslim. On the other hand, this law is going to be a lot more difficult to attack in court because, like I said, it's very similar to something the Obama administration did. And because non-citizens who have never come to the United States have no rights and no Mm. standing whatsoever, so are going to have to rely on these lawsuits by the state of Hawaii, by universities, by big corporations to essentially try and perpetuate the rights of these people who are coming to the United States. And at the end of the day, unlike the first ban, this one may be a lot harder to get around. But we need that means we just need to fight harder and keep resisting and keep calling our senators and keep speaking out against these kinds of pieces of legislation and keep holding Trump's feet to the fire about things like this. All right, guys, that was everything you needed to, need to know about the Muslim ban 2.0 or racism again. We'll be back <laughs> next week with another action-packed show of Let Your Voice Be Heard. Ash Cash is next up with Tashima, and you know they got a great episode for you guys. So don't miss us too much, and we will see you on the flip side. This is Beyonce sending us off. WHCR 90.3 FM.